All right, there we go. Genesis 29, verse 1. Now Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. When they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, "My brothers, where are you from?" "We're from Haran," they replied. He said to them, "Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson, or Laban?" "Yes, we know him," they answered. Then Jacob asked them, "Is he well?" "Yes, he is," they said. "And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep." "Look," he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flock. Is it not time for the flocks to be gathered? Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. Then Jacob saw when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep. He went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, "You are my own flesh and blood." After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, "Just because you are a relative of mine, should you not work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be." Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. And he said, "I'll work for you seven years in return for your daughter Rachel." Laban said, "It is better that I give you give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me." So Jacob served him seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, "Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her." So Laban brought together all the people of the place. And gave a feast, but when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah, his daughter, as her attendant. When morning came, there was, "What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me?" Laban replied, "It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week." Then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Alrighty,、uh, definitely an interesting passage.、Um, Lots of、uh, yeah, I don't know, weird deception and、um, 
uh, giving of wives and sisters and daughters. It's, uh, it's, it's an odd one, and one I'm sure most of us are familiar with. You've been around church a while, but um, just before we really pack it and jump into the meat. Oh, sorry, guys. I didn't switch it for you. There we go. Or maybe Jack did. Legend. Um, before we jump too deep into the meat of the passage, I think there's something first that needs to be addressed um, about this, and something we've talked about in Genesis, but it's worth going over again. Because a lot of people know about this passage, right? Christians and non-Christians as well. So there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, that surround it and worthy to iron them out a little bit here. Um, So what are those misconceptions? Um, One of them being, I think just to start off, the Bible is a story, right? Or at least Genesis is. Genesis is a story. And so within the story, you don't always get narrative or commentary that explains every single thing and every step that's happening, right? God isn't always communicating, you know, he doesn't come down to uh, Jacob when he deceives Esau and says, you know, no, 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 do this better, or this is how you fix it, right? It's, it's a story, and we're meant to see the consequences play out, and from that develop an understanding of, yeah, what the story is and what it's trying to communicate, right? That's the, that's the art of a good story, is someone is able to show you those vices and in virtues without having to, you know, explain it fully. So remember that as we're going through Genesis, right? It's not always saying these things are positive, right? Or things to mimic about Jacob or Abraham or, um, or Isaac, right? Because as we've looked at in these previous weeks, these characters are incredibly flawed, right? And this week as well, we'll be going into Jacob's character. But the, what I was referring to a lot, and you know, how, why this passage gets, I guess, slammed in our modern world is because, look at it, it's, the Bible is primitive, right? It's this patriarchal um, old book that supports polygamy, selling women as concubines, you know, women are just objects in this, right? It's all, I don't know, it's, it's old stuff, right? That's, what it, that's how we used to function. And I think it's important, you know, as we look at the whole story, right, and in the coming weeks we'll look more into the consequences as well, but to see, okay, what is the Bible actually saying about polygamy, right? I mean, how does this relationship between Jacob, Leah, and Rachel really pan out? I mean, spoiler alert, not good, right? I mean, Jacob ends up with 12 children with four different women, right, because of that competitiveness and insecurity amongst them. Okay, so it's not, it's not saying these things are great or something to be followed. It's saying, look, this is what happened, right? And that's what I have up there. Who are the heroes in this story, right? Because a lot of people look to these old texts and expect this great hero of old, right? Who is it? Who is, you know, this, um, especially when you're trying to build a religion, right? You want to uh, establish your forefathers as great examples to look up to and follow, right? And the Bible does. It gives us examples, but examples who have failed in a lot of ways. And we are meant to see that failure and look out for it in our own lives as well, right? Because the Bible doesn't only speak to, you know, about who these heroes are. It speaks about what human nature is, right? And it speaks about you and me. I mean, even as I referred to, I mean, within this passage, right? If, we're, if the critique is women are just, you know, throw, tossed aside and thrown away as whatever objects within this, I mean, really read the passage for yourself. Have you read this story? I mean, Leah is, yes, treated in that way. Her father, I mean, it's pretty rough for her, right? I mean, the only descriptor we get of her is that she's not that good looking. 
that her father doesn't, you know, thinks I'm going to have a hard time getting rid of her, and so sells her off in a sense. And then, you know, the one man you are now married to isn't really that attracted to you, right? But who is the one that, you know, receives a great, I don't know, blessing or promise from God, and we'll look at, I said later in next week, it's more next week's topic, but it's Leah, right, or Leah. It's her that the patriarch or the, the legends, the Messiah of Jesus and David are come through her lineage, through her sons, right? Moses as well, the Levites. So just something important to be thinking about as we're going through this, but I just wanted to clear the, the air with this passage about yeah, some of these, these attacks in the Bible that it's a, a primitive book. So what is the story trying to tell us? What is the main point here? Here we go. Reap what you sow. Right? Now what do I mean by that? Reaping what you sow. And how does it apply in this passage? So to start from the beginning, right? You get this scene of Jacob. And last week, he just came from the desert. Okay? And he had this epic moment with God where... You know, God comes to him in a dream, gives him great promises, and he's probably feeling pretty excited, right? Okay, I'm going to get this nation, this land, you know, a wife, and start developing a people, right? There's, um, I guess, great hope moving forward, and there's probably a little bit of pep in his step. And so as he's going about, you know, he finds the people, the people he's looking for, right? His, his sister's family, or his, sorry, his mother's family. And so, yes, it's all coming together. I've found them. Now, in a sense, he's, he's kind of like trying to demonstrate himself as well to Laban and the people, right? I mean, how many times has it mentioned this stone that he's moving is large, right? I mean, in couple, several times. And so, I mean, mama's boy, right? Jacob, he's been, as he's making stew, he's doing some curls, I guess, or something as he's working because he moves it all by himself, right? Several times it talks about the shepherds needed it as a community to lift up and pick it up, but he moved it all himself, right? And so, okay, this guy's strong. He's like his mother in that he's tenacious and hardworking as well. He's not Rebecca this time, but he is the one who goes down and waters Rachel's sheep, right? If you guys remember from Genesis 24, who was the one who watered and put in all that effort? Rebecca. Now Jacob is the one doing it, right? So he is shown to be, you know, in Laban's eyes, quite resourceful, right? I'm sure that's why Laban's coming to him and kissing him, right? Like, oh, my flesh and blood, free labor, right? Like, how exciting is that? And so that's, I mean, that's the picture is trying to paint is that you got this strong guy who not only is hardworking, but he's also desperate, right? I mean, he's desperate to fulfill, um, in a sense, find a wife and start building his family, right? And Laban knows that as well. He knows that, okay, this dude is desperate. And what else? Perfect. He loves Rachel. Oh, great. Now, you know, this is perfect for Laban, right? This is the, the perfect moment in which you, uh, the, or the perfect conditions under which you can exploit someone, right? What does Jacob have? You know, he has something that Laban wants, hard work and labor to help him tender the, the flock. What is he willing, you know, willing to work for? Something that you know, Laban has. He's desperate, and Jacob is vulnerable as well. right? And so he uses it. He exploits it. He exploits Jacob in that moment to say, you know, all right, you love my daughter? Well, here you go. And, but you know, as you know, the passage that we read, I mean, there's a little switcheroo, right? He's taken the sibling and 
of Rachel, Leah, and given her to Jacob, right? And so what is that supposed to remind you of? What does that remind Jacob of? As he's going in fury at Laban, how dare you, right? You, you deceived me. You tricked me. You, you, you went against the contract that we had agreed. And in the moment he says, you deceived me, does he then realize, oh my goodness, I did the same thing. Who deceived? I deceived my father when he was in a vulnerable, weak state, right? In the darkness, right? Because Isaac was blind, right? In the darkness, I deceived my father. I betrayed him in some sense. Or sorry, in every sense, he exposed him. He exposed Isaac in a vulnerable moment. He swapped with the siblings for his own gain. And as I said, yeah, in the darkness, he deceived him. Jewish commentaries, commentators even go as far as to, you know, to say, <clears throat> sorry, as Isaac approached Leah, he asked her, why did you respond when I called out for Rachel in the dark? And Leah retorted, why did you respond when your father called out Esau? Jacob has been humbled and he learned the consequences of his actions. He knows the sting of betrayal now, the same betrayal he gave his brother and his father. He learned the consequences of his actions. His past has finally caught up with him. The deceiver has been deceived. What goes around comes around, as I put it up there as well, good Michael Scott quote, well, 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 how the turntables have. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be, well, how the tables have turned, but Michael gets confused anyways. I just thought, actually Lonnie found it, it was a good one. But I think it's a, as we said, what is the story trying to teach us, right? Is that constantly throughout, you know, stories and history, and especially in this one here, the theme is that you're con there's consequences for your actions, right? Don't be deceived, as it says up there in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You know, the, I guess, I was even listening to uh, a uh, secular psychologist. I don't know, not really secular now. I don't know how you want to describe him. Jordan Peterson, he was talking about this, right? And he says, when you betray the moral law or the, this moral code, it's the equivalent of holding back like one of those plastic rulers, right? And the more you pull and pull and pull and back, the more tension it builds, and then you let go and poop, pop. You know, what happens? You get smacked in the face, right? <laughs> and in the same way, it's... There's going to be a point in which your, the, the, your, the actions and what you have sown is going to catch up to you, right? And you will reap what you've sown. Um, and I think, I mean, the, the appeal to us within this passage is to consider, I mean, what are you reaping now, right? What is it that you find frustrating or, um, I guess, tension in your life? Where, why you reap it, where does that come from, right? What have you sown previously to now you are reaping this aspect? You know, maybe you feel like your relationships are stale, that there's conflict within your marriage. Maybe it's feeling of being drained or burned out. Wherever we are right now, it's important to consider, right? Where does this come from? Where have I sown this previously? If we don't initiate or make time for others, 
Why do we still feel surprised about not feeling close to other people? If we aren't, consider, if we aren't considering our own arrogance in conflicts within relationships and marriages, why do we feel like it's okay then to complain about our spouse's reactions or mate's reactions? When we put our careers before God and have selfish ambition, why do we feel surprised when it takes a toll on our relationship with God? If we haven't been reading or being connected to the Word, why are we surprised that our anxiety levels are off the charts? We reap what we sow, right? And I like, I mean, even when, as I yeah, have in Pierre, the Galatians 6 7, right? There's an aspect of time that is played out in reaping what you sow, right? You don't reap or you don't sow a crop tomorrow or today and then tomorrow you're, the consequences are here, right? There's an aspect, and for Jacob as well, he would have lived it out, right? That it happens over time, right? I mean, how easy would it have been for him? I mean, it's kind of what he did. I mean, he, he got his dismal scheme, dismal deceit, right? Ran away to a people who didn't really know what happened, right? Or couldn't have known without him telling them. And seven years have gone by, right? He could have easily, you know, ticked it off in his head like, oh, sweet, got away with that one, no dramas, right? But there's an aspect of time that always plays into this that it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, right? And there's, you will, you will reap one day what you have sown previously. Okay. Thanks, guys. So just as much as understanding what you are reaping now is the important aspect of what are you sowing now? I mean, what aspects are you investing into and um, how do you treat your relationships with others now to the point, and when you look two, two ten years down the line, what are those relationships going to look like? Or what is your career going to look like? Or what is your life with God going to look like? You reap what you sow. And I think, here we go. And there's an important aspect as well when you're exposed, right, in the way Jacob did, right? Because the very last words he said were, you know, you've deceived me, Right? And then, but what is his then response, right? Because we have there's two options in how we respond. I'll go over the first one or the negative one first. You know, the negative one would be self-pity, right? How easy would it have been for Jacob to then, after he was done shaking his fist at Laban, then go to God and say, hey man, like, what happened, Right? We were just in the desert together. You promised me all these great things, a family and a nation. And now what's happened, this guy has tricked me out of the wife I wanted. And now I'm working on land that isn't even my own, right? What is, it's like the, I don't know, an employee becoming a contractor. Sorry, I say HR, but within me. But, I mean, the point is, how would he, you know, there's, the temp, there's obviously a temptation here for Jacob to shake his fist at God, Right? And to point fingers at anybody else but himself, right? And he could have spiraled into this, uh, yeah, this self-pity, right? As I have up here, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 to 11, talks about what uh, uh, repentance, right, really looks like and how that is combined with both worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, right? So even up here, if I've caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not, um, 
harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this manner. You know, Paul is writing to the Corinthians church, right? He just ripped into them a passage before, and now he's saying, look, I'm happy in some sense. Like, because you, there's change that was produced, right? Which is an absolutely vital aspect of our Christian walk and our Christian life. When you, when you are exposed, when you are humbled, when you are reaping what you have sown, what is your response? Is it that of self-pity, woe is me, you know, God, why has God done this to me? Life isn't fair sort of thing. It's, um, it, I mean, in the end, that doesn't really produce repentance or change, right? Mike, uh, not Mike, I think Mike helped, but Ed Anton, who some of you know, and he's come and preached here before, wrote a book on this called uh, Repentance. There's his quote there from the book. Um, but yeah, but he talks about this idea of what worldly sorrow looks like. There's a great danger in the tears of self-pity because such tears are self-affirming. You begin to believe that you really are a victim of circumstances or misunderstandings. Consequently, you may actually become more firmly entrenched in your sin through them. I mean, even within this book, he talks about, okay, look at, even compare Esau, or sorry, Esau and Jacob, right? When Esau, uh, with the stew, right, was exposed of his um, immorality, as we've already looked at, what was his response? Weeping in tears, right? Oh, woe is me. You know, I'll do whatever I can to reverse it. You know, give me my blessing back, please, please, please. You know, it's this kind of, your tears are too little, too late in some sense. But here we get a picture of Jacob, right? And what that true godly uh, repentance is. Because as soon as, as I said, he says the word deceit, he accepts the terms, right? I mean, Laban gives him a, gives him a terrible excuse for why he betrayed him, right? Really, like... Because it's your custom? Like, why didn't you tell me this in the seven years coming up, right? It doesn't negate the fact that we had this contract and you betrayed it. But yet he accepts Laban's, again, terrible excuse for what has happened and works those seven years, right? He, he go back. It's not necessarily spelled out, but it's implied that he, there's those aspects of repentance in him. You know, he's, all right, yeah, I see what I've done. And I'm going to work those additional seven years, right? I'm going to put in the effort. I'm going to make right what I've done. That's an important aspect. When, you, when it's exposed, right? When the sin is exposed, when you, the deceiver has been showed for his ways, how do we react? And we, I mean, Jacob's actually a good example in this case, right? He repents. He changes. He works those seven years. He doesn't trust Laban anymore, as we'll see. But he's still obeys his contract, and the deceiving days are over in some sense. And as, you know, as we've talked about, I mean, Isaac is now away from home. He's learning these things on his own. To have not repented, to have not you know, allowed that change to come, I mean, he would have, it's this sense of, do you really want to be stuck in your old ways forever? I mean, there's a sense where the boy has to grow up and become a man, Right? To have those moments of repentance and those refreshing moments of change. Another thing I wanted to talk about 
within this idea of you know reaping what you sow, or as Mike talked about karma, right? There's um, some confusions amongst what that means, right? And I'm sure some of you thought, you know, and a lot of Christians do, when I talk about, you know, you will pay your consequences, right? Then a lot of our instant responses, oh, but grace, 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 grace. You know, God gives us grace, right? And amen, absolutely, God gives us grace, right? I mean, even in this passage, right? Jacob made a mistake. God still came to him and gave him the promise, regardless of him making the mistake. And now Jacob is paying for his consequences, right? I mean, I think it shows a, I mean, negative or consequences aren't necessarily a negative thing, right? I mean, it teaches us and it shows the sin and it helps us, as you know, I just talked about, grow and learn, right? I mean, that's the, the classic, if you see a father, right? who fails to discipline their child who's, you know, I don't know, running around like a maniac, punching kids, or, you know, you don't think like, oh, what a great father, you know, good job, right? It's, you know, God uses these punishments, right, to help us, to teach us, to help us learn and grow. And to say that, you know, it's, oh, grace, grace. Yeah, there's grace, but why does that contradict God disciplining you and helping you learn in those ways, Right? I mean, don't, don't use that excuse to circumvent your responsibility within manners, okay? Misnomer number two, not everyone is punished, right? People love looking for exceptions to the rule. Um, I was on like a, a deep Reddit dive and about all this, and I came across all these people giving examples of, oh, this guy cheated his way to the top, and now there's no repercussions for him. He like robbed his one of his colleagues or his close partner of so much money now he's loaded the law didn't help his partner he's kind of the repercussions aren't there anymore he's living his life totally scot-free of what he did and then i mean to i mean respond to that i mean really like there's no repercussions for that man now you've cheated one of your best friends or one of your closest partners and now to sear your conscience of any, or you have seared your conscience of any guilt, so as to say, oh, I don't have any regret now. I mean, is that really the life you want to live to, to get to the top and to become really wealthy and successful? I mean, if you do, go ahead, have fun. But I mean, that's not the life I would definitely, I would want to live, right? Is to be constantly, yeah, well, I mean, having to watch your back as well, right? The deceiver is deceived or is, will be deceived, right? What kind of people are you surrounding yourself with in these scenarios? So even those exemptions, right? Think deeper about it. What, is, what are those people who are cheating themselves to the top or who, who aren't getting paid for their repercussions? Are they really living without repercussions? I mean, and as we looked previously, um, if not as clear to our eyes as it may be, we know there is a time coming where they will be paid for their repercussions or those actions, right? Um, I mean, that's uh, just to summarize, and uh, that was it. I think that was my last slide. There we go. So just to summarize, um, I'll leave you with a charge, right? Consider what you are reaping now, what you were previously sowing, and what you are now sowing for the future, right? Because those consequences will always come, and you have a choice when they come, right? 
will you repent or you know allow the consequences to I guess expose that sin within you or are you going to hide away circumvent responsibility you know say grace 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 that, or allow it to really change you and take responsibility for what you have done so as we close out today I'll just uh, I'll pray for that and then that's it thanks for coming to church <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word and these examples, Lord. I'm uh, yeah, grateful in some sense that they are not perfect, that there's a lot of mistakes, Lord. And I just pray that as we read through this, that um, yeah, we see ourselves in these passages and we see that you know, we are just as much prone to those mistakes. And um, I pray that uh, as we consider the, J- the story of Jacob and what he did, that we consider what our own consequences or what our own actions bring and what what those consequences look like, Lord. I pray that we're honest with ourselves, take responsibility for what has happened, but also um, find gratitude in the fact that your promise still stands regardless, that yes, even though we have sinned, we messed up, we want to do better for you because, because of your son and what he has done for us. So I'm grateful for this time. Love your word. Love you. Thank you. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.